Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 16, and 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 through 27. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So it's good to be back with you. Uh, many of you are aware we've been traveling the last couple of weeks. We left two weeks ago as soon as the service was over. Uh, we, we uh, I think, over 13 days at least drove through something like 11 states. So it's good to be home. 
And thank you. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being, uh, I said earlier, pastoring can be hard. Uh, and you got, it really isn't hard to pastor you. And so thank you for being a church uh, that we look forward to coming home to. Isn't it good to feel like you look forward to coming home? Uh, we really do. So we are, we are glad to be here. Good to see so many of you this morning as the summer kind of winds down. We are continuing in a series talking about some of the strategic applications of our theology that shape our ministry as a church in our unique cultural time and setting. Our core commitments, you might say, what we've called our theological vision. And so really what's happening this summer is we've been having a family meeting. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, a lot of times we really try to talk about things in such a way that even if you're not a Christian, you, you don't feel like you're on the outside looking in. But in some measure, as we sit and have a family meeting, maybe think of it this way. I was thinking about this this morning. You know, if you're, if you're thinking about um, you're, you're dating a girl or dating a boy, you're thinking about um, marrying her, you know, you, you marry the family she comes with as well, right? And so... Uh, it really is a good idea, so young men, if you're here, you know, maybe, maybe attend a family meeting sometime, kind of get a lay of the land to see what, what it is you're getting yourself into, and I would just encourage you, if you're, a Christ, if you're not a Christian, we're having a family meeting, and it's good for you to be here so you can hear us talk about together what we really feel like God has called us to be, so you can know what you're signing up for uh, if, you, if you really are considering faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, this morning we come to you a part of, of what we're going to talk about this, this whole summer that really we have the most work to do yet still, I think. The part that probably is the most crucial on one hand, uh, but at the same time, uh, we, still have, we still have a lot of work to do. Now, we started at the beginning of the summer, if you can remember all the way back there, with the gospel saying that we strive to be a church that focuses on the gospel and stays on the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. For salvation, Romans 1.16, and the natural inclination of the human heart is to always be undermining the implications of the gospel and pushing us back into works righteousness, which produces either fear or pride or a bouncing back and forth between the two and thus steals our joy. It diminishes our relationships with one another. It makes us ineffective uh, in the ministry and the mission that God has called us to. Secondly, we said that the gospel, in other words, Jesus' love for us, and in, in, in his compassion for us in response to our brokenness and sadness, the gospel leads us to move towards the city. So we strive to be a church for the city, not ensconced in, at the periphery of, of our town, avoiding the, conf- avoiding the confrontation that needs to happen uh, in the place that we live, not safely ghettoizing from the dangers of post-Christian society, but right in the middle of things. Which is why I'm so glad we have people in this church that are running for public office. We have leaders pushing for reform in, the, in our school systems. We have businessmen dreaming about the flourishing of the downtown area of Winter Haven because we said the goal from the very beginning of our church has not been just a great church. The goal is a great city. And so a great church is one that exists for something other than itself, and that's what we want to be too. We want to be a place where people who don't believe like us feel welcome. They feel included and are given space to ask their questions and hopefully find answers. Now, when those two things collide, here's what I want you to see. When those two things collide, when a commitment to the gospel and to powerfully and relevantly engaging the city with the gospel, when the gospel and the city, when when those two things collide, it creates what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks. It creates a movement. And so for the next three weeks, I'm going to be trying to describe what we mean by that word. We're looking for a movement We have a 50-year vision for ministry in Winter Haven. I've said this before. Uh, A 50-year movement, a 50-year gospel movement that we want to initiate and sustain of churches and ministries that we hope 
will make a visible difference in our city and in our county. Now, in each of these three areas, gospel, city, movement, what we're after here, and I'm stealing, I'm stealing from Tim Keller a little bit in a book he wrote called Center Church here, but I think, I think this is really helpful and he's on to something, but we're, what we're after here is we're aiming for balance. We're aiming for the center. We want to avoid uh, what is um, dangerous on either side when you go to an extreme one way or the other. So, Kyle, if you're ready with that first slide, when we talked about the gospel, we said what we're trying to do with the gospel, so go back, go back two slides for me. There we go. With the gospel, we're trying to avoid, on the one hand, legalism and religion, you see there on the left, and on the other hand, we're trying to avoid irreligion uh, and relativism, because neither of those things is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God, but when you kind of move away from the gospel on either side, either towards irreligion and relativism, which has captured our culture, legalism or religion, which has most times captured the church, you lose the power of God. And the natural inclination of the human heart is to constantly be decentering itself towards one of these two dangerous, um, whatever you want to call them, poles. Now, it's the same with the city. With the city, go to that next slide, Kyle. With the city, what we're trying to do is we're trying to reach a balance. We're trying to reach the center between the dangers of, on the one hand, being either under-adapted and too antagonistic to the culture that we live in, or over-adapted and and too assimilated, too um, not, not distinct enough, because in either case, the church really loses its, its way. And so the, the over-adapted is the mainline churches that no longer speak any truth. They're a mirror of the culture's values and, and assumptions. An under-adapted, challenging church is what the bad parts of evangelicalism, where, where um, it just feels like people are mean and angry and they hate. They hate the culture because it's spinning out of control. And in both cases... We really do. We want to be there in the middle. We want to be a church that avoids either of those two dangers and finds itself in the center there. But the same is true of this third part that we're talking about this, this summer, and that's movement. What, what, what captures a movement, what distinguishes a movement from what most of us have experienced is on the one hand, uh, it, is, it is there in the middle. The church can become too rigid and structurally, and you see that on the left side, it can be too unstructured either you can have too little structure so the key in what we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks is to maintain a balance of on the one hand a clearly defined system of leadership development that includes proper spiritual authority chain of command and so forth while at the same time not allowing the church itself to become the focus of the people's work it's really hard david and i were kind of perplexed even talking about this this morning together a little bit and so i have a hard task in front of me but i think these these texts will, will help us uh, from Ephesians and from Corinthians. Now, let me say this to you. The issue confronting us, the, the thing that is going to make, make or, the make or break it thing in our church really is the issue of leadership development. You see, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. As I've said, we have a 50-year vision for ministry in the city. As a network of churches in Polk County, we have a goal of planting 20 churches in the next 20 years. 20 churches in the next 20 years. Our stated goal as a congregation, or as a church, Redeemer of Winter Haven, is a congregation in each quadrant of Winter Haven with a total of 1,000 people in attendance because, because we believe that this will give us the numbers of people and resources that we need so that together we can begin to address the real needs of our city with workable solutions. Now, the number one, the, the numero uno, the number one factor that will determine our success and whether we're able to accomplish any of these things is whether we are able to gather, develop, train, and send out leaders. Can I say that again? The number one factor in whether we are, to, whether we are able to accomplish any of those things that we've set as goals is whether we are able to gather, develop, 
train and send out leaders. See, opportunity is not the problem. 80% of our city is, is unchurched. 80,000 people in Winter Haven are outside of Christ. Opportunity is not the problem. Money is not the problem. So what's the problem? Jesus himself said, the harvest is plentiful. Do you remember the rest of that verse? But what? The workers are few. So what's the problem? What's the problem we have to solve? It's a worker problem. We have a worker problem. And from the very beginning, the problem has been a worker problem. Where are we going to get the people to do this work? I mean, every time you plant a church, like we did in February, I said it creates a leadership crisis. Because when you plant a church, who goes with the church plant? Leaders. They wouldn't go otherwise. I mean, who would sign up for that? Who's dumb enough to do that, right? Leaders go. And so if leaders go, then what happens? Well, the second string has to step up. You, you, you have to have, in, in all of the churches in our, in, our, um, in our network, we've seen this. You plant a church, you send out your leaders, and then, and then everybody just starts to freak out because the children's ministry is decimated or the worship team is decimated or whatever the case might be. And so we have to have always a second string of people ready to jump in when we send leaders out. I mean, right now, right now, at this minute, we need five to seven more community groups in our church. I mean, and we're losing leaders of those groups faster than we can place them. We need dozens more workers in children's ministry. I mean, those are just small areas of concern in our church. I mean, look at the bigger picture. We want to plant 20 churches, right? You hear me? 20 churches? Where, where are we going to find? What do we need? Well, we need church planners, don't we? Well, where are they going to come from? Now, you could say we, we could recruit them from the outside, but here is really where we run up against a problem. I mean, the best and the brightest, the most talented people coming out of graduate schools are being recruited to places like New York. And I mean, Tim Keller's just raised $53 million to plant all these churches. $53 million. Right? To plant churches in New York City. So people are being scooped up to New York and Boston and Atlanta and Charlotte. And, and honestly, I, I have yet to come across very many guys that I go and meet in places on recruiting trips where they're dreaming about Polk County, Florida. <laughs> right? Most people aren't. Most people aren't. And so it's, honestly, it's hard for us to compete with that. So what do we have to do? Well, we, so we've known from the very beginning, we're going to have to grow our leaders and our church planners from within. We need worship leaders, community group leaders, faithful, committed people to go with church plants and work hard to see those plants grow. Where, where are those people going to come from? How is this going to happen? Well, we have to have some expectations the first is that every single person in this church, the expectation needs to be that every person here is striving for leadership. And leadership, by leadership, I mean spiritual maturity. And I, there's a very simple formula. So, Kyle, get ready for the next slide. There's a very simple formula to measure spiritual maturity. And here's what I mean by striving for leadership, striving for spiritual maturity. You can, you can measure the spiritual maturity of your life by this simple equation. Does the outflow of your life is it greater than the intake? Now, for a time, the intake, you know, what happens is, is there's an inverse relationship. For a time, intake needs to be high. And while the intake is high, the outflow needs to be really low. But here's what needs to happen in your experience in anything, in job-related training, whatever the case might be. Employers expect that though they know on the front end there has to be a lot of intake and they can, they can expect a, a little bit of outflow. If there's not this kind of thing that happens, you don't last on the job very long, do you? So there needs to be, you know, in your experience of church, that kind of where the outtake may be very small and the intake very large, but over time, you who are being taught actually don't just continue to be taught and taught and taught and taught. 
but you're taught so that you might become a teacher. You're, you're poured into so that you might be the one pouring. Do you see what I'm saying? There has to be an expectation that we're going somewhere, that we have a vision for the kind of people that we would become because there's a great work that we're called to do and we've got to get ready for that work. But not only that, but the other expectation, which David even mentioned, and I'm reminded of it every time we send our kids out of the room, our kids, I've said this over and over again, and it's caught on with some of you, but I want to say it again. Our kids are the future generation of church planters, leaders, and workers. Which is why what happens over there right now is so important. It's not babysitting. That's missionary training going on over there. You with me? That's church planter training happening. Which is why you ought to sign up and be over there and help. Because that's important stuff. We're after a gospel movement. Now, let me, let's get to the text. And let me show you what I mean by this. By gospel movement, I mean two things. And they're just the two points in the outline that I've given, you, I've given you this morning, a gospel movement, a church that's a part of a gospel movement. Let's put it that way. There are two things that are happening. The first is that ideas, strategies, ministry initiatives, and projects are flowing from the bottom up and not the top down. So there's a flow from the bottom up and not the top down. Ideas, strategies, ministry initiatives, projects flowing from the bottom up and not the top down. And at the same time, time, energy, people, especially leaders, are flowing from the inside out and not the outside in. So it's a grassroots church and a sending church. That's what creates a movement. A grassroots church and at the same time a sending church. And so let's look at both of those just for a minute together, okay? So first, first I said the first thing is, is that a church that, that really is a church that can initiate a movement or it goes beyond a church to a movement, it happens when ideas, strategies, ministry initiatives, and projects begin to flow from the bottom up and not the top down. It becomes a grassroots movement. Let me explain for just a minute. Now, what I mean by top-down, uh, when you talk about a top-down movement or a top-down church, what we mean by that is that nothing happens in a top-down organization unless it comes from the leaders. Everybody else just waits around to be given something to do. Initiative and creativity are squashed, and people are made to feel like they don't matter. And that's, that, you know, that's, that's not acceptable. So the question that I get a lot of time, people will come to me in my office and they'll say to me, you know, how can I help? How can I help you? How can I help you in what you're doing? And the question is not what you can do to help me. I hear that all the time, but it's the wrong question. The real question is, how can I help you? Because, see, it's not your job to help me with my ministry. That's got it backwards. It's my job to help you with yours. But people in top-down churches take all of their cues from the leadership, either because the leadership demands it, which shame on them for doing that, or because it's what they've come to expect, that every idea, every ministry initiative always flows from the top down. And the result is what sociologists and economists have, have seen all over the place. They call it the 80-20 rule. Are you familiar with this? That in most organizations, 80% of the effect comes from 20% of the causes. In your life, I mean, in, mo- in most things, 80% of the effect comes from 20% of the causes. It's called the law of the vital few. So 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And so in a church of 450 to 500 like ours, did you know our church was a church of 400, 450 to 500 people? Probably not because only half of us get to church every Sunday. So there's about 250 to 300 people here, but we're actually a church of about 450 people. In a church of 450 people, there's a core of 90 to 100 people that are responsible for most of the stuff that gets done. So we do a vision dinner quarterly throughout the year. Any idea what the attendance at those meetings are? About 95 to 100 people or 20%. So that's our vital few. Now, here's the problem. The problem is, is it puts the pastor and the leader 
in an overfunctioning role and leaves everybody else underperforming, you know, after all they're being paid to do the work, right? They've been trained. But let me say, that's not good for pastors, and it's not good for church. And I would just say, don't you guys know that's why we went into this to begin with? That we, I'm talking about pastor types like me, we have a Messiah complex, most of us pastors, which is also why we burn out so brilliantly. I mean, I'm, I'm finishing, well, excuse me, I'm 15 years out from finishing my graduate degree now. Jonathan and I graduated a year apart. Uh, and uh, the statistics are that 75%, listen to this, 75% of the men and women who went to seminary with us 15 years ago are no longer in ministry. Burnout discouragement, loneliness, moral failure. So both, both Jonathan and I are part of the 25%, and that's largely due to you and what a joy you are to pastor, so thank you. It's true. Now, economists and people, business people, argue that the 80-20 rule is, in, is inevitable. Now, that may be true, but listen to this passage in Ephesians 4 again. Because what I think Ephesians 4 does is it doesn't allow us to settle into this in inevitability. So listen again, we'll start in verse 12. He gave, to the apostles, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then down in verse 16, joined and held together by every joint, which when it is equipped, or excuse me, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. So there's a question that we have to answer. What is the church? When you say that to somebody who needs help, I bet my church could help with that. What, who do you mean? Do you mean the pastors? Do you mean the staff? Do you mean whoever happens to be at the physical address Monday through Friday from 8 to 5? What do you mean? We have to define what the church is. And here it's defined for us in both these passages. The church is a body, a group of people that's interconnected and interdependent. And this is one of the reasons why the top-down approach has such traction. It allows the church to function as individuals connected to a place or a person, a figurehead, a pastor, whoever it might be, not a body that is actually connected to one another. According to Paul, the works of ministry belong to the church, not just to the pastors and the leaders. The body, verse 16, builds itself up. Again, that's not what pastors do. It's what happens when all the different parts of the body, we're told, they're working properly. And Paul's very clear the body does not consist of one member, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 12. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. That's good news. The church is a collective of very different people, and our differences are what are most, the most important thing about us. Individually, we're incomplete. Together, God is making us whole. And this is why the ministry must belong to the body and not just to the few. Because, you see, do you understand why that is? Because the more we spread out, the more we specialize the more effective we will become. Now, just to give you a little picture of what I think this might look like, and it really is a picture of weakness, and that's because I do think it, we come from a place of weakness. My grandfather, uh, who died uh, a number of years ago now, uh, he took up golf in his retirement, uh, and, and, and he was retired for over 25 years, so he played a lot of golf. And by the time, uh, towards the end, before he gave it up and decided that he had grown too old to do it, uh, toward the end, I never got to see this, but gosh, I wish I could have just gone out and watched. He and his golfing buddies, uh, they, had, they had aged to the degree that they, they really had to work together as a team in order to even get through a round of golf. So, so my grandfather was nearly deaf. Now, I, really, and honestly, he was selectively deaf. Anybody know anybody like that? But he really did have a hard time hearing. 
but even as he got older, he had really, really good eyes. And that was good because one of the other men in the foursome was almost completely blind. So he literally would be on the tee box and hit the ball and have no idea where it went. And my grandfather would stand there right next to him and watch it and be able to tell him where the ball, where the ball went. And he would guide him to his ball. And, there, I'm, and I can't make this up. I'm not kidding. And there's a third member of the foursome that suffered from dementia. So literally by the time he hit his ball and got back into the cart, he had forgotten where the ball had gone. And so the other guys, the other guys would, would keep him on track so that he could go, go find the ball that he had hit. And, I, you know, I just, oh, at Country Club of Winter Haven, I would have loved to have been out there and just hiding in the trees watching these guys. I think it took them about six hours to finish a round of golf. And individually, they would have never made it through. Do you understand? Individually, they could have never done it. But together, together, working together, each offering their unique skill and compensating for the other's weakness, they made it happen. Listen, that's the church. You see that? Church is a body it is a collective of supernaturally endowed people. Isn't this the argument Paul's making? Start in verse 4 of Ephesians, excuse me, in verse 8 of Ephesians 4. Paul there quotes from Psalm 68, which describes the homecoming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who has conquered. He's ascending back into heaven, having been victorious on the earth in his death and resurrection. And he has with him the trophies of his victory, those he's rescued from captivity. Isn't it a beautiful picture? And so you've seen similar scenes on television or in the movies. Think of the victory parade that happened in Cleveland after LeBron and the Cavs won the title a few weeks ago. Or the returning home of a warring champion, a general in victory in battle, and the streets lined with people screaming and cheering. What usually happens in those scenes, right? There's confetti and the people cheer and the, the hero is given the keys to the city and lauded with praise and rewarded with gifts. And that's what happens in Psalm 68, 18. Listen. Here's what the psalmist says. He says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts. Receiving gifts among men. But notice, if you come to Ephesians 4, Paul changes the language of of Psalm 68. He quotes Psalm 68, but he says that when Jesus Christ returned home to heaven victorious, he didn't receive gifts, he gave them. Jesus did not celebrate his victory over sin and death by opening his arms and receiving the praise and the honor he deserved. This is, this is the king we serve. Our king came home to heaven victorious, and he celebrated his victory with generosity towards his people. Isn't that amazing? He gave gifts. Paul goes on to list those gifts. He says, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, the pastors, teachers, to equip the saints who've also been outfitted with gifts for ministry. And what are those gifts? Service. This is from Romans 12. Service, which is a supernatural ability to be in the background while others, others are in the spotlight and make them great. Teaching, which is a supernatural ability to help people understand the scriptures. Exhortation is one that Paul lists, which is a supernatural ability to do loving confrontation with people. Generosity, which is the supernatural ability to joyfully go without to meet needs. Leadership, the supernatural ability to make decisions and carry out plans that cause others to flourish. Mercy, the supernatural ability to empathize with those who are hurting and bring them relief. That's, that's just the list from Romans 12. The church is a body that is a collective of supernaturally endowed people. And therefore, the church is every member ministry. I mean, the difference between apostles, prophets, shepherds, and the rest of the church is one of just function, not degree. Do you understand that? The difference between the people on the stage and the people out there is one of function, not degree. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, whether you're eight 
or you're 80, please, the Spirit has endowed you with supernatural talents and abilities. And we are all under the mandate of Romans 12, 7. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And in Titus, Paul says that becoming a church does something to you. It makes you zealous. It makes you zealous to use your strengths and your gifts to do good. We are a people, because of his grace, who are zealous for good, good works, Titus 2.14. So the idea is the ministry strategies and the projects are to come from this supernatural collective of people who have all been given gifts and who are compelled by the love of Christ in them to be using those gifts to, to bless and to encourage and to help other people. This is how the church should function. And I would tell you, you know, just thinking about this over the course of the years we've been doing this, the ideas, ministry initiatives, and projects that have come from the church to, from the, church to the leaders and not the other way around, that's where we've done our best work. That's absolutely where we've done our best work. When, when, when uh, Debbie Crosby come, came to me years ago and said, I want to do, uh, and she did it the way it should be done, I, I really want to do MOPS ministry here. And she didn't say, uh, and so here's what I need you to do. She said, I want to do MOPS ministry here, and I don't need anything from you. I'd just like for you to encourage us and, and do whatever you can to help us. Listen, that's easy. Hello. Sign me up. Right? You want to discourage your pastor, come to him and say, I have all these great ideas. Now here's what you got to do to make those things happen. Right? Or, or when um, Brad Beattie comes and says, I have a, I have a heart for the city and for, re, you know, for, for meeting specific tangible needs in the city. And then we had a person in the church who came and said, I, I have a large sum of money that I, need to, you know, that I need to give and I'd like to give it toward that. Where these ideas are coming and, and the leaders just get to come around those things and say, it sounds like a great idea, let's do it. And we'll provide whatever support and encouragement we can. Or when, um, when I'm at a meeting in Lakeland on a Tuesday afternoon at 2 o'clock, and we're talking about needing to send somebody from our church as a missionary to Nicaragua to help our ministry in Nicaragua. And at 3.30 in the afternoon, I come back over here, and Tony Ellsmick walks into my office and says, you know, I've been thinking about the mission field. Really? So have I. Just in the last hour, as a matter of fact. Do you see when these things percolate from the bottom up? Now, because I'm a pastor, what is the role of the pastor then? If, we're, if, if what we're after is this, this collective of supernaturally endowed people, passionate because of the love of God for them in Christ to do good work, what's the role of the pastor? Well, I have a job. I have a job and you have a job. And I have to do my job and refuse to do your job for you. Now, and when, when I do that, well, it will come as a shock to you, especially you've been in, in, if you've been in church for a while. But the work of the apostles, prophets, and pastors is to bring these gifts out of the rest of the body. And I used this illustration uh, not long ago, but if you think about the James Bond movies, which, you know, all the guys in the room love the James Bond movies. But here's the thing. If you think about our church, the pastor is not the secret agent. I don't get to play James Bond, unfortunately. Uh, the pastor is, is somebody else. You're James Bond. The pastor is Q. Remember Q? Before James Bond went out on his mission, where does he always go first? The very first stop. What's the very first stop? Q. And Q is that guy. He's in the little basement or he's underground somewhere. Q's the guy that has all the, the neat toys, right? And it's Q's job to outfit the agent with all of the gadgets that he will need to accomplish the mission. That's what, if you look at verse 12 in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 4, that's what the word equip means. Pastors are responsible for the multiplication of ministry in the church. Can I say that again? Pastors are responsible for not the ministry of the church. They're responsible for the making sure there's multiplication of ministry in the church. My success is not measured by how much I get done. 
My success is not measured in how much work I accomplish, but by the amount of work I'm able to give away. Do you see that? If, I'm, if, I'm, if I am faithful, I do not measure my faithfulness by the amount of work I get done in the church, but by the amount of work I'm able to give away to others in the church because that's the measure of my success. It's natural for leader, teachers of Bible studies and small group leaders as they do their job effectively to create dependency in the people they're ministering to, but the farther along they go, more and more dependency. This is what happens. So one of the metaphors the Bible uses to describe ministry is parenting. And here's, listen, we all know that the true success of parenting is to do what? Is to work yourself out of a job. To create independence. Now, we've got to finish this part because we've got to move on. And I'm taking too long. But in the First Corinthians passage, Paul mentions two obstacles to this kind of multiplication of ministry. Uh, and the first is that some people in the body would think too lowly of themselves and their gifts. So look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 15 and 16. Paul starts to describe this. He says, if the foot, and Susan just did it perfectly. She, you know, you could hear she captured the way in which the, someone would say this to someone else. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the ears should say, because I'm not the eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. So this is the person who thinks I'm not important because I'm not, you know, whoever, the guy up there. I'm not, I'm not up there on the stage. I'm not a small group leader. I don't have anything to offer. I'm just a teenager. What can I really do? I don't really, you know, I don't have what it takes. And we have to be careful not to create this culture where people feel this way. I love what Francis Schaeffer said. He said, with, you know, that this is kind of the famous thing. With God, there are no little people. Surely this is what the text teaches, isn't it? God, help us if everybody was like me. Hello? That's, you should chuckle at that. I'm serious. God, help us. What trouble we'd be in. Ears can't see. Uh, excuse me. Ears can't see, but eyes can't hear. I mean, unless you're a voice slider boy, you can't walk on your hands. Uh, but, you know, but it's hard to eat with your feet. You see how this works. I mean, Schaefer said there are no little people, and there are no big people in, tr- in the true spiritual sense. There are only consecrated people and unconsecrated people. And the problem for each of us is applying this truth to ourselves. Am I me or, I am, the, or am I the me of God? The me that God is making me to be. I mean, don't think too lowly of yourself. Don't say because I can't do that, then whatever someone else is doing, you know, that you admire, whatever that thing might be, because I can't do that, I'm not important. Be the you of God, the you that God has created you and supernaturally endowed you and called you to something that is unique that only you and nobody else can do. Do you know that? There are people that only you can reach. There are things that only you can do that nobody else can do. Don't dream of being somebody different. Don't rob the body of the beauty of you. We need to be actively, actively, strategically. You you know, we need you to be actively, strategically you. But the second obstacle is that some people in the body, while some would, would think too lowly of themselves and their gifts, others would presumably, presumably, excuse me, the leadership would begin to think too highly of themselves and their gifts and their work and think everybody else is not nearly as important. And Paul addresses this further down in verses 22, 21 and 22 of, second, of 1 Corinthians. He says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And so the 20% can't look at the 80% and just say, you know what, just stay out of our way. That's why this is so important. Pastors, if they're not careful, can give off the impression that the church's job is just to show up, put their tithe in the offering box, and let the pastor do his thing. Pastors do that. You can fill a room that way, but you can't grow a movement. 
We want a movement. So the solution, the solution to all of this, the gospel solution then is to see what Paul's trying to teach us here in Ephesians, that these spiritual gifts are actually grace gifts. Look at verse 7 of Ephesians 4. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. God arranged the members of the body, each of them as he chose. So the church is not a meritocracy. All of the talents we have that other people notice, they are gifts, they are grace. They're not something we can take credit for. In the same letter, Paul writes to the Corinthians, what do, you, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So grace, grace destroys all superiority and inferiority complexes. It levels things out. The most public, upfront person is no more important than the behind-the-scenes person because we are not defined by what we do. We are not defined by whatever success we enjoy. Everything we have, every success, every positive outcome in our life, it's all of grace. So I'm, I spent a lot of time. So the first thing you see is that ideas, ministry, initiatives, projects have to flow from the bottom up, not the top down. But then the second thing, and I'll be much shorter here. The second thing, but we have to be careful, see, because we have to be careful that the energy, focus, and people, especially leaders, are also at the same time flowing from the inside out and not the outside in, that we be ascending church. And what I mean by this is, by the outside in, I mean as a church grows larger, its gravitational pull increases, it's just a fact. Churches create programs and meet needs and then have to enlist volunteers to run those programs. And so all of the time and the energy and the people get pulled into maintaining these programs or structures. Or you could put it this way. The further along you progress towards leadership in an outside-in church, the more you feel the gravitational pull. The more you get, it begins to pull you back in. The, the church becomes a bigger and bigger part of your life. You spend more and more time at 1410 Dundee Road, you build deeper and deeper relationships with people in the church, which of course means what? That you're not building relationships with people outside of the church. More and more of your time and energy and creativity go to solving problems in the church, which of course means you have less time to be doing those things out in the community. So the church becomes your mission, or some aspect of the church becomes your ministry. And this is a problem. The result of this might be a great church, but not a movement. And what do we want? We want a movement. Now, I should remind us that as we listened and heard this morning, we've taken vows to support the work and the worship of the church, and we need to take that seriously. It's our job, it's our job though, the leaders, it's our job to minimize the constraints of that vow. We work really hard at this. So what is the church's work that we're promising to support? Well, of course, Sunday mornings in this room and community groups, youth and children's ministry, helping support and being present in those things, helping family raise their children towards faith, as we have also vowed. But the church's mission goes way beyond that. It's to evangelize the lost. It's to offer gospel solutions to our community, to plant new churches, and to support that work. Hear me. To support that work, you and I have to be here less. Not so we can be doing nothing, but we need to be here less so we can be strategically out there more. And I promise, I promise, I've said this, I promise that when we put things on the calendar... And ask you to come to them. It's because we believe that it will help you live more faithfully toward the people and places which God has called you to. But an outside-in church is focused, an outside-in church is focused on pulling people in. An inside-out church, is what, is, which is what we're after, is focused on giving people away. We have a 50-year vision for ministry. I've said that a number of times now. But we don't have a 150-year ministry a vision for ministry because we believe that longevity is not the goal. We need to stop celebrating how long we've been around. You with me? 
Churches need to stop celebrating how long they've been around. A lot of these churches are celebrating 150 years of ministry, but 145 of those have been bad years of ministry. I'm serious. We need to stop celebrating how long we've been around. We need to start celebrating what we're giving away. Because that's what truly lasts. You and I are going to be gone one day. What's going to be left? What we've given away to the next generation. The more we give away, of course, the more likely it will be that we might not even be here past 50 years. Generosity threatens stability and longevity. But the true measure of leadership development is how fruitful people are outside the church. So a church that's doing its job and equipping people, uh, it's, it's equipping those people and then not asking much of them, but instead giving them away in ministry to, hear me, to workplaces and PTAs and HOAs, God help us, and Little League baseball parks and community Bible studies and personal renewal weekends and all of these kinds of things that people are involved in. The church is not the opportunity. It should not be at least the main opportunity for ministry. Those opportunities exist out there where you live and work and play. The church is the place where you come to get ready to live out there. You see how this is different? In every other kind of organization, and businessmen will, will be, track with me, in every other kind of organization, the leaders are trying to train people with the goal of making the organization great. But the goal for the organization is to become a great organization. In the church, it's the job of the leaders to train people so that the people themselves become great. Not for the sake of the organization, but for the work that's going on outside of the organization. So that the success, success in the work of the organization is actually threatening the organization. Do you see how that works? Because the church is a body of people, the goal is the greatness in people that doesn't directly positively affect the organization. So again, success actually threatens, and this is what it means for us to live by faith, to believe that if we're generous in giving people away, God will be generous in replacing them. So let me just finish here. Let me take, let me take these passages and plop them right down into the middle of, uh, of a chapter in Acts. Acts chapter 8, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, I want to just set the stage for what I want you to see, how what we've seen here about how the body works, how it fits in what Acts chapter 8 is telling, is telling us. And in Acts chapter 1, as we've studied Acts together over the last few months, it's clear that Jesus intends for the church in Jerusalem to spread out from Jerusalem to all the other parts of the Mediterranean world. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You come to Acts 8, and what's amazing about coming to Acts 8 is what you read, it hasn't happened. In Acts 1.8, Jesus told them to go to these places. You come to Acts 8, it hasn't happened. They're still huddled there in Jerusalem. They haven't made much progress at all. And then you come to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and you read, And there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, and those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, where had Jesus told them to go? Judea, Samaria, Persecution arose, and they were scattered throughout all the regions of where? Judea, Samaria. You think that's coincidence? Come on. Here's the, list. Here's the lesson. Jesus is so intent on time, energy, people, flowing from the inside out into the world that he will use whatever means necessary to accomplish it, even dismantling his church. text says that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. In other words, do you see? In other words, it was this moment. This was the moment when the church became a lay movement. When the apostles stayed there and the lay people picked up the work. That the work began to flow from the bottom up. That people began to flow from the inside out. And the result 
The result is that the church grew beyond Jerusalem and became a worldwide movement. Praise the Lord, right? So how do you not think about yourself and be generous? That's what we're saying, isn't it? How do you give and give and give and not worry about whether you'll have what you need? How do you not spend all of your time thinking about yourself? You have to know that there's somebody thinking about you, someone absolutely committed to meeting your every need. In Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, at the end of the day, this whole discussion of spiritual gifts is really a meditation on God's unending generosity towards his people. And it's shown to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for our sins, was raised, ascended into heaven, and was given a place of power and authority over all things. Do you know what that means? Here's the truth I hope lands on your heart. Jesus has always possessed a heart of love and generosity for us, but now in victory, he has been given the place from which he can be generous as his heart desires to be. The one who holds all authority in heaven and earth in his hands holds us, his church, in his heart. Don't you see? We don't have to worry about whether we'll have all we need. We can keep giving people away because he is faithful. And so let's turn our eyes to him. Uh, thanks for being patient. I know I went long today. But these are important things for us to discuss, to discuss. Let's turn our eyes to him and ask him to continue to do this work in us, can we? So, Father, as we come now to the close of our service and as we sing together, as we cry out in this, this next song about our need for you, how we need you. Oh, Lord, it's true. We need you. Every hour, not every day, not every week, every hour, every minute, we need you uh, because there's so much lack in us. We are, we are a weak people. We stumble around in life like that foursome my grandfather played with for so many years on the golf course. We really don't possess the abilities that we need to even make it through without one another. We so desperately need the body to come around us. We need to be that body. We thank you that you have, in fact, supernaturally endowed all of us with gifts that you mean for us to use. We confess our selfishness and our fear, our buying into the superiority, inferiority complex, or whatever the case might be, that has kept us excited about other things and hesitant to, to offer our gifts to the body. Uh, they are not ours. They, are, they belong to the body itself, and so we repent of this. And, Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us to know uh, what it means for us to be busy using the gifts that you've given to us for the edification of the body, for the capturing of your people, your sheep that are not yet a part of your fold. Oh, Lord, we know you desire this from us. And so come, Holy Spirit, and make us fruitful to that end that you might be glorified in us. That's what we hope and pray. Uh, ignite a gospel movement among us that takes the city of Winter Haven and Polk County by storm so that you might be glorified. 20 churches, do that, Lord. Help us in this work that you've given us to do, and we pray in these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his death, he has dealt with your sin, and he has removed it from you as far as the east is from the west. In his resurrection, he has overcome your brokenness and is working to make you new. And in his ascension to heaven, he has come into the place of power and authority by which he can send the Spirit into your life to equip you with every good thing that you need for the work that he's called you to. That's what these words promise. That as you go, he goes with you, his power and his presence, to bless and to keep you. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.